If I seem a little amped or nervous, I'm not. I just am really geeked out on caffeine right now. <laughs> True story, I got a, I've got a five-month-old, and she kept us at about three or four in the morning. And so I just figured coffee would help, and it didn't. Yeah, it backfired. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Hansen. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you'll see me up here about one to two times a month, and that's really all you need to see me. Uh, just, just because... <laughs> Uh, and, the, and the reason being is because uh, I'll dress it up a hundred different ways, but I'm only going to talk to you about two different things every time. And that's, it's a true story. And it's either your relationship with God or the mission that we've been saved to. And most of the time I'll intersect those two because I think they intersect. But that's, I'm just convinced that if number one, we can make our relationship with God a priority, uh, the way the New Testament church did, we will be on mission and some of that other stuff will just kind of begin to fall in place. Um, kind of what my gig is here is I, I run the branch of Austin New Church called Restore Austin. And I connect with a lot of nonprofits so we can do a lot of the service that we do through our community groups. In fact, for those who don't know, next week we won't be meeting here. We're going to do what we call Serve Austin Sunday. And we will go out to six different projects throughout the city and serve them in their area of need. And so that, that's... That's kind of what I do here. Um, also, so on top of that, what we've been doing here on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Acts. And we're just kind of taking it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and just unpacking what this New Testament church, what we're calling this dangerous church, was like. And see, the thing about the book of Acts is oftentimes it's misinterpreted because it's dumbed down to methodology. You know, this is what they did, so this is what we need to do, when really... What they did and the results that they got was nothing more than a reflection of their posture, of their attitude, and of their motivation. And so what we're doing is we're kind of, we're going through this book slowly and just unpacking what is it that this dangerous church had that so many people, so many churches today are missing because they've dumbed that book down to, to methodology. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the book of Acts is actually part two in a two-work volume, part one being the book of Luke. Luke wrote both, and he wrote one about the work of Christ while he was here on earth. He wrote part two, the book of Acts, about the work of Christ through his church on earth. Now, I love the book of Luke, because here's what the book of Luke is. It is a bunch of self-centered, easily angered, comfort-oriented, security-focused, it's all about me, people following Christ. I can mimic that. I get that. I do it every day. I can do that. And that's what the book is about. I mean, all the way to the end, you've got these people worrying about themselves, and you have hero Jesus over here doing everything else. But when we get to the book of Acts, I've kind of got a love-hate relationship with it because it intimidates me. Because these same people who are self-focused, who are fear-driven, who are comfort-oriented, and focused on their own security are now these the same group of people are now these people who are radically obedient to Jesus. These same people who, when Christ was being crucified, it wasn't even them, when Christ was being crucified, they take off, leaving him stranded, are now fearlessly running into places of sure death. These same people who were more concerned, I mean, at one point Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die, and Peter's first deal is, well, what about him? What about John? These same people who are more concerned about things being fair 
are now willing, we'll learn this in a couple of weeks, are now willing to live their lives in such a way, downgrade their status of living so that everyone in their community is without need. And see, when you study that word, everyone, back in the original, it actually means everyone. And so, and so what happens is we get to the book of Acts and we think, that is such a sweet fairy tale. That is such a sweet story. But we live, but, but see, the book of Acts, they hadn't got to that part in the Bible where it talks about the American dream. And so, so they could do that. But now we're at a place where it's all about building up and leaving and, and me. But see, can, I mean, can you imagine that sort of obedience? Can you imagine that sort of faith? Can you imagine that sort of belief system that you are so radically obedient to Jesus that the argument was not dumbed down to, well, is it 10% of growth or 10% of net? I mean, isn't that kind of what we do with, with Christianity? We take, we, and when I say radical obedience, here's what kind of comes to mind, at least it did to me at first when I kind of started thinking about this, is, is morality, is rules. When we think of obedience, we kind of dumbed it down to manage morality. And so here's what we do. We look at acts and we think, crap. Can I say that? I, I can't. Nobody was in need? Hey, you know what? I can give 10%. And we begin to live lives that don't mirror this, not because we're not being persecuted by a Roman government, because it's just really uncomfortable to live life that is dependent on faith. It's really uncomfortable because I don't get to be in control. I have to sacrifice self. I have to begin to think about, I really have to downgrade my way of living to make sure. Now, it doesn't give that as a command. See, that's what's great about that. It doesn't give that as a command. They just were so compelled that nobody in their midst live in need. And we, we could do this about several things. I'm just kind of picking on this one. But this is what the New Testament church looked like. And that really intimidates the crud, how about that word? The, the crud out of me. Because I want to live my life in a way that I can control it. I don't really want to depend on him. And here's the scary thing for most of us. When we think of, self-included, when we think of faith, we have reduced faith to this cognitive learning. But here's the question that I've, I've been, and so if I seem a little harsh, it's because God's got me studying Leviticus, and I'll just jack with you about, and so, if the Holy Spirit, ask yourself this question, if the Holy Spirit, if Jesus was found out to be a fraud, if the Holy Spirit left your life, would your life be any different? I mean, I'd have to find a new job. But is the way I'm living on faith truly dependent on the Holy Spirit? See, and what we're getting ready to read today is often one of the most skipped over passages in the book of Acts because what we want to do is we do want to get to those passages where nobody was in need. These healings happen. Hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ and those are, those are awesome stories. And so what we do is we see passages like we read today and we kind of skip over that because the passage we're going to read today really calls out, really is, if we miss today, we miss the why and the how of the early church. We can get all the methods from the rest of the book of Acts. We can get all the what they did. We can get the, we, I mean, we can frame. Here's what it looked like. But if we miss today's passage, we miss the why and the how of the early church. 
See, I believe what we're going to read today not only summarizes the apostles' reaction to some of the stuff they were going through, but I think it should be a conviction to us about our reaction to some of the things we go through. I think it should summarize. I think it should be able to, when we read today, it should be when we look at it the way we deal with things like temptation, with doubt. Because, I mean, let's be real. Persecution, that's not kicking the Ten Commandments out of public school. I mean, it's just not. Especially when most of us don't pray anyway. But the persecution, these guys went through it. And I think what what what. What if we can grab today, if we can grab a hold of what the text is saying, I think the challenge is, is this what we have that is forcing and guiding our lives to live lives that are so out there in faith that if the Holy Spirit were to step out, our lives would crash. Erwin McManus said it this way, the reason we don't see apostolic signs is because we don't live apostolic lives. We want the signs without the dependency on, on faith. So, so let me go ahead and recap what's going on so far before we get up to the text that we're going to read today. Jesus ascends to heaven. Before he ascends to heaven, he looks at these cowards and he says, Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This was his command. This is what he commanded them. So they go to this upper room and they, they pray. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. They become empowered. And they go out, first sermon, three to 5,000 saved, boom. And this is what's going on. And then Peter and John, like good religious people, they go to uh, the temple and they see this, this crippled and he asks uh, ask them for money. And they're, they're kind of like, well, we don't have anything about what we have is a lot better. So why don't you just get up and walk on in with us? And so he does that and it causes this, this big commotion. Because, see, when the, when the religious freaks of the day decided to kill Jesus, this is what they really thought. They thought, oh, this is easy. You, kill, you, you knock out the head, and the body's going to dwindle. But it had the reverse effect, kind of like my caffeine this morning. They, they killed the head, and that sucker exploded. The church went nuts. And so uh, the, the religious elite, they pull, the, uh, they pull John and Peter in, and they... They're, they're ready to put them on trial and they probably do this, this in, intellectual huddle and say, well, we can't really accuse them because what they're claiming, the proof is standing right next to them in the, in the crippled guy. He's standing there. So they're kind of right. And then on top of that, they, they're kind of growing a fanfare. And so if we accuse them of being wrong when it's evident that they're right, we could get all these people to turn against us and our political histories just don't look good anymore. So... What they do is they tell uh, Peter and John, they, they threaten them. This is what the Bible says. They threaten them and they send them out. Now, here's, here's what we need to understand to grab the context of this. Threaten is not like we do to our children. One, two. Now, if you don't get over here, I'm going to start again. Okay? When, uh, when, they, when it says threatened, they were legitimate. Okay? And their proof was Jesus. We killed the guy who started this thing. So they had ample reason to believe, oh, they mean what they say. They're really going to, and, and as we continue to read in Acts, we find out that this, this word threaten or what they do because of this threat is uh, the best case scenario is beat the trash out of them and torture them. That's the best you get if you keep going. Worst case scenario is they kill you. 
And so this is the threat. So this is, this is the fork in the road that we're at right now. Radical obedience, no matter the circumstance, or diso, let's not be harsh, delayed obedience. I mean, right, isn't that wisdom? Hey, look, if we just press pause on obedience, then maybe some of this will simmer down and we can be sneaky about telling people about Jesus. I mean, that's a wise thing to do because if they kill me, it takes the father from my family and da-da, right? We, we, but, here, but here's, that, they didn't look at it that way. So here's, here's where we're at. Obedience, no matter the result, even if it costs them their life or disobedience. They're at the fork in the road. So let's see. So we're going to pick up is Acts 4.23 through 31. Let's see their response to this. I think the verse is on the screen. Acts 4.23 through 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, did you catch what they did not do? They didn't go back and complain about how unfair the government was. They just stated the facts. Well, we wouldn't have elected him, and this wouldn't have. They didn't go, they didn't go complain. They didn't go back and figure out a new strategy. I got a good idea. Why don't we start meeting in a coffee house? Is that way no one, and we can look just like them. They didn't go back and find out a new strategy, and they didn't go back and blog about it. Well, that's, that's good enough. They, did, what? they didn't go back and do that. So what did they do? They went back and brought everybody together. It says, um, when they heard this, they raised their voices together. They, they all pulled together, and what was their response to the threats? They prayed. Now, now here, here's the deal. When I was in the business world, I had uh, a very wise leader tell me. He's a little short Irish Italian guy, so he was just mad all the time. And he, uh, he looked at me and he said, when you got a problem and you keep it to yourself, it's your problem. But when you got a problem and you tell everybody else, it's our problem. And so they go back and they tell everybody else, not in a complaining way, but what they want. They wanted everybody to join together with them, raise their voices to heaven, and pray. So point number one is this simple in your notes. They realized that the only way they could make it through their surrounding circumstances was to pray. Now, this is not, if you look at the lives of the apostles, this prayer thing was not like we pray today, a last ditch effort. I've done all I know how to do. I guess we can pray. They actually believed there was an effect. They actually believed something would happen by the way they prayed. You know, I mean, us church planners, we're, we're good at this. I've tried to raise money from them. They won't give us money, so you know what? We can at least ask them to pray. Prayer was the first instinct. Prayer was something they believed there was real power in, more so than a change of strategy, more so than who they knew, and more so than the money they received. So they knew the best, not last case, the best thing they could do was come together and pray. They realized that the only way they could make it through their surrounding circumstances was to pray. Now, there's two ways you can know almost anything you want to know about a person. Number one is look at their bank account or their checking book, or their, their checkbook. I don't know if people use those anymore. I don't think so. Look at those. That'll tell you where their heart really is. That's kind of a, a scriptural thing anyway. 
Like if somebody were to say, I'm all about justice. And you looked at their checkbook, you'd say, well, not really. Theoretically, you are. And you want to you say you are, but you're really not. You're, you're really about really nice restaurants and, you know, flat panel televisions and that kind of stuff. You're not really about justice. Well, sure I am. I gave 10% of the church, and they told me that they were. So that's one way you can tell. You look at someone's checkbook. Look at the way they spend money. You can tell where their heart is. Number two is uh, when you listen to how or what that person prays about. Right? If you really listen to the content or the motivation behind someone's prayer, it tells a lot about them because here's the truth. If any of us were in this situation, I think 100% of us would pray. I think we would. But see, my prayer would be, God, I'm gonna lose a job. I'm not gonna provide for my family, my security, my comfort, my, 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 my is gonna be stripped from me and I don't know how I'm gonna make it. Most of the time when we go to prayer, it's in a point of desperation and prayer is focused on us. I'm not saying, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to pray for our needs or things that are going on. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the focus, the motivation, and the heart behind it. So let's, uh, let's take a look at how they prayed. They started, they, we're going to pick up in verse 24. They started and they said, Sovereign Lord. This is not like that intro we do. Dear God. Sovereign Lord is them coming before God and saying, look, we are really tempted to doubt here. We are really tempted to feel like you're not in control. We are really tempted to just blog instead of do. We are really tempted to bell here, but here's what we want to do. We want to take our mind from where it is scattered and we want to center it on the fact that you are sovereign and you are in control and there's nothing anybody can do outside of your hands. So before we worry about self, we're going to focus on who you are. And you are the sovereign God who is in control. And they go on. They say, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, we have the same language going on. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through, your, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now listen, listen this. This is, kind of, this is for free. Um, you're welcome. Um, It says, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. Now listen how the Holy Spirit speaks. He asks a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the anointed one. So what it looks like is you got the Holy Spirit sitting there with David thinking, I wonder why they're doing this. Hey, David, I got a good idea. Why don't you ask God why they're, but Holy Spirit is God. He already knows why the nations are raging. See, they're using this time to parallel it with their time. There's this thing in the Bible, it's called, uh, and don't, don't get scared, it's called spirit-filled praying. I know, it's a weird term. But basically, the Holy Spirit begins to pray through you in a way you don't know how to pray. See, the Holy Spirit knew why. But I would assume, and you can say, he's reading into that, I am. I would assume that David, like all of us, was concerned about his kingdom was concerned about his unteen wives, was concerned about, was concerned about self. Why? Because he was a bad person? No, because that's all of our bend. That's all of our posture if we don't have sovereign God-oriented prayer. And so the Holy Spirit, if anything, sparks a question in David that got David's focus off of self. And so David asked this question because of the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And 
And so what you do is when you take this, you go back to Psalms 2, which is what he's quoting. One of the things that the Jews, or even just writers kind of did of that time, is when they were writing, if they were referring to something else, they would just say a couple lines. Because back then, they really believed the word of God was the word of God. And they, see, if we really believed it, that's something we would just feast on. If we really believed it was the most important thing that there was, that we had, that God left us, we would feast on that like there was nothing else to feast on. These folk memorized this junk. They, they, they put it in their head. And so here's what they did. All they had to do was say a couple lines. And then everybody else listening to it, if they were Jews, they're like, oh yeah. And they remembered the whole thing. It'd be kind of like, like if you were in a room with, okay, you're in a room with me, and I was talking to Sarah. And I said, remember that time in Las Vegas when? And that's all I said. And she starts laughing and you guys are like, she's got an easy sense of humor. But she remembers because she was there. You guys, you guys don't. And so what's going on here is, is uh, as they're praying, they bring to their own memory something everyone else probably already knew. When you, I don't have time to go into it, but when you go back to Psalms 2, it is almost an identical parallel to this. And David starts saying, like it says here, why do the nations rage? And by about halfway through, maybe quarter of the way through he is reminding himself that God you are in control and nothing is going to happen outside of your hand and then by the end of the prayer in Psalms 2 it says at the very end blessed are those who take refuge in him so what is David doing what are they doing they're reminding themselves the blessing the comfort the real security does not come from the change of circumstances it comes no matter the circumstances for those who take refuge and him. So what they're doing is they're saying, we have got to pray that we have a heart that this persecution will actually drive us deeper into him instead of doubt him. And so now they begin to parallel it. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. In fact, a lot of this same language David uses in Psalms 2. And listen, verse 28. They did... Because remember, the people at the time thought they championed, they killed Jesus, they cut the head of the movement out. And listen to what they remind themselves of. Because this is where peace comes from, not in circumstances changing. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Again, we've got four verses of them reminding themselves that, God, you are in control. Not any of this persecution, not any bad circumstance, not the almost getting fired, not the deadline that's unfair, not Monday morning traffic. You are in control and no one else. So help us center on that. So, point number two is this. Their prayer reflects that they were more concerned about the kingdom and will of God rather than their own comfort and security. Their prayer reflects that they were more concerned about the kingdom and will of God rather than their own comfort and security. They go on, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Watch this. Consider their threats and shut their mouth. Consider their threats and press pause till they're done doing what they're doing so we can make obedience easier. Consider their threats and recognize that my comfort and security is on the line here, God. No, it says consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great 
boldness. In other words, I don't need the circumstances to change to make obedience easier. God, I need you to give me the strength to obey you no matter the cost in the midst of whatever circumstance. And then he goes on and says, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, to which I'm saying, okay, God, look, here's the deal. You see what I'm doing? You see what I'm putting on the line? Thanks, by, you're welcome, by the way. But could you at least, could you at least make me kind of the co-author, give me a little credit here? Could you at least, okay, no, you don't want to do that, but could you put a, a special thanks to? I mean, let me, let me get something here. But that's not what they say. They say, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let Jesus get the glory from my radical obedience so that those who hear and see are not attracted to me, but him. This is where they found their peace. This is where they found their security. And this is where they found their comfort was that all men, every man, woman, and child might hear the gospel of Jesus, the good news. So point number three, their prayer shows that their concern was for God's glory. Their prayer shows that their concern was for God's glory. Radical obedience to Jesus was not contingent on preferred circumstances, a certain gifting, or a personality type. Are you with me? And so when you look at their prayer, here's the three things you find. We, we, we boil this down, the three things that their prayer shows that their hearts were bent toward, that, that, that mattered to them more than anything else. God's glory, God's kingdom, and his will. Now that sounds really familiar. Because if you, I take you back to the book of Luke, the disciples who were Jews asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Now that's a weird question from people who've grown up their whole life learning how to pray. It'd be like me saying, teach me to walk. They, they, right? they got it. But why did they ask Jesus this? Because the way he prayed and the result of the way he prayed was very different from the result of the way they prayed. And what they did is, what they were essentially asking was, Jesus, we want that. Whatever that is, we want it. So would you teach us to pray the way you pray? Because we know you're connecting to God in such a way we've never dreamed of. And so what does he say? He says, okay, well, you pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's that talking about? Praying about God's glory before you even get to self. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus say? We see it come into fruition right here. When you pray, this is what you need to focus on. You need to focus that your heart, that your mind will not be centered on what's happening to you, but that God gets glory for everything and that his name will be famed and established in your culture because of you. I know it's tough because you've got a will and your will is bent towards you. So here's what we're gonna do. Now we're gonna pray, God, would you exchange my will for your will? Would you exchange my desires for your desires? Would you make your will happen? And would you help me? I've prayed like this before. I don't know if you've ever prayed like this. God, I want to want to want it. Like, I really don't want your will because it takes a lot. So here's, and this is being real. I want to want it. Sometimes that's where we have to start. But this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, pray for my will above your will. And then pray for my kingdom. Here's the thing. I like to be in control. I really do. I just, I'm being real, I just I do, because I can manage it, I don't have to freak out, and I can make sure, and Jesus is saying, you know what, you need to pray? 
because you're human, you will fall, you will cheat people, you will do this, you will do that. You need to pray that my kingdom is established in my rule. And you, like everybody else, is a servant in my kingdom. So this is how Jesus tells them to pray. When you go back and look at Nehemiah, you look at Elijah, you look at all these people in the Old Testament, this is the way they prayed. This is why we see the effect that we see from uh, Old Testament prophets, Old Testament men and women of God, New Testament church, New Testament women of God, because their focus was never on self. Their focus was on, and so the ultimate question is, well, what about me? When do I get to get to me? As if God didn't know about you. And so, he, so after we focus on that, Jesus says this. He goes, yeah, you ask God for your daily bread. But at another time, it's almost like he's saying, hey, if you don't get to that, that's cool because your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask it. Another way to say that, your heavenly father knows what you need before you even know you need it. So if you don't get to that, take security in the fact that you have centered on my glory, my kingdom, and my will because if those happen, you'll get what you need. So the theme of the text is this. Radical obedience to Jesus is the result of a life. Radical obedience to Jesus is the result of a life that is connected to the living God through prayer, focused on his glory, his kingdom, and his will. See, what what if when New Year's rolls around, the biggest thought in our mind was not how much weight I need to lose? What if it wasn't, man, I didn't get that gift. I need that gift. What if it, I've only got three more months of this job and then they're gonna fire me. What if the biggest concern of our hearts and our mind was have we connected to the living God today? Not wait for Sunday. What if the greatest concern in our life before we went to school, before we did anything, before we went to our job was have I connected? Not have I gave him my wish list, but have I connected to the living God today? Not waited till Sunday. Well, I did, sure, I did last Sunday. It's Friday, I'm almost there again. Have I, in my own relationship with God, connected to him today? The theme of the text, radical obedience to Jesus is the result of a life that is connected to the living God through prayer focused on his glory, kingdom, and will. So here it is in a nutshell. The reason the disciples went from fearful, self-centered, comfort-oriented, security-laden weasels to fearless, others-oriented, willing to downgrade their lifestyle so nobody went in need. The reason this little community of 12 went from 120 to thousands in a short period of time was not because of their educational background. It was not because they knew the right people. It was not because they were moral enough and learned how to dumb down the Bible to manage morality. It was not because they learned all the right strategies from the latest church planners. The reason you and I, this church, will go from self-centered, self-focused, comfort-oriented, American dream-dreaming people to people who are literally focused on connecting to the living God daily in prayer is not because you have the handsome and coolest pastors in Austin. I promise. Someone laughed loud there. But it's because we become a people who are driven. Not think it's a good idea, not read Acts and think that's a nice fairy tale. I'll tell it to my kids sometime 
but people who are driven by the glory, the will, and the kingdom of God. And they know that only happens by being connected to him in prayer, the product being radical obedience. We skipped a ver- we, we didn't finish the verse. Here's how it ends. This was the result of a radical obedience that was produced by a people who's connected to the living God in radical obedience. After, result, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I don't care what PBS says, it's not talking about a fault line. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The first result is they connected to the living God and were filled with the Holy Spirit. But what about the needs? The greatest need they had daily was to connect to God. And when that becomes the need, everything else dwarfs. It becomes a blip on the radar. The result was they actually connected. When it says the place was shaken, I'll put scripture references on the blog. It means that God was among them. Wow. Not waiting till Sunday to have God among us. Can you imagine if that was the driving force of every day is that I would meet, I would connect with the living God. And it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a couple reasons I like that. Number one, I grew up charismatic, and so there's always that argument, well, you filled once, or you filled here, or you filled there. Well, this is about, Peter and John's about their third time being filled. So there are, the argument is not, how many times do you get filled? The argument, or the fact is, we are humans and we leak. Yeah, we leak. And so, We need to, in order to be empowered to radical obedience, in order to stop dumbing down the Bible to manage morality, in order to really fulfill what God has called us to fulfill, we need to daily be connected to the living God and be filled with his spirit. Isn't that why Jesus said he sent spirit to empower us? Here's what's, I read the Bible and sometimes I think, man, if I would, they at least had Jesus walking with them. What does Jesus tell them? He says, it's good for you that I go. In other words, I'm going to do something better for you than me walking with you. I'm going to send God to live inside of you, which is way better than me walking beside you. And that promise is to us as well. They were more concerned with connecting to God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, and spoke the word of God boldly. Result two, they continued in radical obedience for the sake of God's will God's kingdom, and God's glory. I don't know where you're at today. Good thing is, none of us have our lives on the line for preaching the gospel. But I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know what that thing is that's tempting you to focus on self and get away from God. I don't know that that situation in your life. But here's what I do know. Is that if, in the midst of life or death persecution for a bunch of ragtag, uneducated men and women, if it was enough for them to connect to the living God, be filled with the Holy Spirit through God-centric prayer, then it's enough for you. My plea is this ho- these holidays is that our focus will not be on the gifts, on whatever else, not that those things are bad, but that you and I become men and women who are focused on connecting to the living God through God-centered prayer. Let's pray.